0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In 1972, the number of Americans who described themselves as religiously unaffiliated was just 5%. In 2018, it was almost 24%. Why has the number of people answering none of the above to the question of their religious affiliation jumped so dramatically in recent years, and what effect will the growth of these so-called nuns have on society in general? My guest explores these questions in his book, The Nuns, where they came from, who they are, and where they are going. His name is Ryan Burge, and he's both a pastor and a professor of political science. In our conversation today, Ryan shares the data on which religions have risen and fallen, and explains why mainland Protestantism has taken a huge dive, and why the number of people who have disaffiliated altogether from religion has grown to rival the number of evangelicals and Catholics in this country. We talk about the role that politics has played in this shift, and the fact that while people once chose their politics based on their religion, they now choose their religion based on their politics. Ryan unpacks the demographic profile of the average nun, breaking it down into the categories' three subgroups, atheists, agnostics, and those who label themselves as nothing in particular. We enter conversation with what the future growth in the nuns may look like, the possible societal effects of an overall decline in religiosity, and whether younger generations may swing back to being more religious. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is nuns. All right, Ryan Burge, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So you got a book called The Nuns. That's N-O-N-E-S, not nuns, like flying nun. Where they came from, who they are, and where they're going. This is about people who identify as not having a religion. And you are both a professor of political science and a pastor of a small Baptist church. So this book sort of is an intersection of those two parts of your life this combination of political science professor and pastor is not something you see very often. How do you find your way into these paths I mean, which came first? Was it the political scientist or the pastor?
1: Well, the, the pastoring thing actually came first. I was 20 years old and I got, somehow I fell into this job as a youth pastor at this little Baptist church, about 30 minutes from where I grew up. And I really took the job because I couldn't find another job for the summer. And that was supposed to be a three month summer internship. It turned into a three year youth pastoring gig, which sort of turned into the next thing, was turned into the next thing. So uh, I've been in my current church for over 15 years now, and I've always done ministry as sort of a side thing. I mean, it's never been my primary career. I've always had two or three things going on at once. You know, going to grad school, being a professor. So I've always been sort of a pastor on the side. But I, in my mind, I see myself as a political scientist first, a college professor first, and a pastor second. And that actually I think works well in terms of balance in my, in my life because now I don't put too much emphasis on one or the other but both are sort of central parts of my identity. And I think they actually both complement each other and help me in both fields understand the other side of things. So,
0: And I think the book actually reflects that balance. It's primarily written from your perspective as a political scientist. I mean, it's very empirical and data-driven. You did all the data analysis yourself. There are several dozen graphs in there. You did all yourself. And then just at the very end, you put on your pastor hat and offer some comments from that perspective too. But let's Let's talk about the data you analyze. because That's the, the main thrust of your book. And the big statistic to talk about is that the number of Americans who say they have no religion, that number was 5% in 1972. It jumped to 24% in 2018. But there's a lot of nuance to that number, a lot going on with that statistic. And to unpack that nuance, I think it would be useful to talk about how social scientists measure religiosity in the first place. Uh, so start there how do we know about the state of religion in America? I mean, are there certain surveys that we use that are sort of sort of like the gold standard in measuring religiosity?
1: Yeah. that's There is one gold standard survey that exists. It's called the General Social Survey, called the GSS. You'll often see it shortened too. It's been going on since 1972. And it's been put together by the National Opinion Research Council, which is based out of the University of Chicago. And they get NSF grant from the United States government Every year to run their survey. And what's great about the GSS is it's been done the same way, using the same format since 1972. So it's really the only way that we have that exists today that we can track religion in a consistent way going back to the 1970s. And it uses a question about religious belonging. You know, what tradition do you find yourself in? What is your, actually, the question asked, what is your present religion, if any? And it gives you several different options Protestant, Catholic, other religion, or none is the first question you get asked. And so what's nice is if you ask the same question the same way, at least you have comparability year to year and decade to decade. A lot of times surveys change the way they ask questions over time, and they can have huge implications for how people answer them. So when I say 5% to 23%, that's a pretty objective measure of how much the nuns have grown. And by the way, they only went from 5% to 7% by 1990. And they've went from seven percent to twenty three percent from nineteen ninety to twenty eighteen. So almost all the growth in the nuns has happened in
0: the last thirty years or so. And so let's talk about this idea of religiosity. So the survey only asks which do you identify with, and so they, you know they'll give you different options: different religions, Catholic, evangelical, other religion, or none. But you know as you highlight in the book you go deep into this there's a lot more to religiosity than that. I mean someone could say they belong to a you know they're Methodist but they might not really I mean they, they don't go. So like so as from a sociological perspective how do we determine religiosity beyond just what someone identifies as?
1: Yeah so I use we use three separate questions. The the one I was just talking about is the belonging question. There's also a behavior question, which is how often do you attend church, and the answers respond, you know, go from never to more than once a week. So we use that sometimes as sort of a measure of devotion. You know, we know that people who go more often are more of whatever they go to. And the third one is religious belief, and that's oftentimes things like what is your view of the Bible or what is your view of God. Do you believe God exists? Do you believe that Satan exists? Do you believe in heaven and hell? Things like that. Really, if you think about religiosity, it's the three B's behavior, belief, and belonging. But the reality is, when we talk about the nuns, the one that I always use is belonging because that's the one that people seem to respond to the most. But the share of Americans who do not believe, do not behave, and do not belong is only about 6% of the country. Over 90% of Americans still say they have some belief in God, even today, despite the fact the nuns are you know, at least 25% of Americans. So what we see typically happens is church attendance is the first thing that drops off. About 40% of Americans, say they never attend church. 25% of Americans, 23, 25% of Americans say have no religious belonging, but only 10% of Americans say they have no religious belief. And some people have sort of a mix and match of those two or three of those three. And so it's very rare for someone to not do any of those three at the
0: same time. So the none, none, nuns is only about 6% of Americans today. So, I mean, I guess that's pretty hard for a political scientist like to really kind of pin down. What does it mean if someone has no religion or if they have a religion? Because I mean, like, for example, I think 25% of those who say they are evangelical Christians, they don't attend church. So from your perspective, like, would you say they're religious or not? What would, what would. So uh,
1: that's a great, great, great question. Measuring stuff is super hard. Whenever I teach my grad students, I spend two hours in my grad method class just saying over and over again, measuring stuff is really, really hard. So for me, there's this question on a survey that says, are you, do you identify as born again or evangelical or not? It's just a yes or no question. And my whole, my whole approach to that question has changed over time. It used to be I would say that you cannot be an evangelical unless you say you're evangelical, but also say you're Protestant or Christian. Like It's impossible to be an evangelical Muslim, let's say. But the most recent data analysis I've looked at, and I've done a lot of analysis in the last couple of weeks, what you're seeing more and more is that people are saying yes to the evangelical question despite the fact they never go to church, Or despite the fact they're not even Christians, there are evangelical Jews, there are evangelical Mormons, there are evangelical Muslims, there are evangelical Catholics now. So I've taken a new approach to the whole thing. Here's what I say. When people tell you who they are, you believe them. So if you tell me you're an evangelical Mormon, I say, great, that is fantastic. Let's figure out why you chose both to identify as an LDS, but also as an evangelical. And what you find if you dig into the data enough is people are not as crazy as you think they are. They're actually picking that evangelical identity for a very good reason. And that reason now is they see themselves as conservative politically, but they also see themselves as aligning more and more with the Republican Party. For instance, Muslims who go to mosque more than once a week and identify as Republicans, half of them also identify as evangelical. So, what you kind of see is you see a logic starting to form in the heads of Americans, and they're seeing like the word evangelical as meaning a political identifier and a cultural identifier, just as much as they're seeing it as a theological identifier. And I know a lot of my past friends go, No, 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 you got to do evangelical. You got to be a Christian. You got to be a Protestant. You got to go to church a lot. And I would say, Yeah, but these people don't believe in evangelicalism the same way you do. And they're not wrong for doing that. So that's the problem with measurement is what I think something means is not what the average person thinks something means. I'm much more sliding toward the perspective of when those people say they're evangelicals, I have to trust they know what that means. And they're picking it for a very good reason. And I think the data backs that up now.
0: And yeah, maybe we can get to this, this intersection of politics and religion that's happened in America in the past 30 years that's sort of changed things, the way we think of religiosity. But let's talk about, you know, sort of the state of religion in America today in general. With the best surveys, what have the numbers looked like for the big religions in the United States? I mean, are there ones that have held steady? Which ones have seen the biggest decrease, etc.?
1: Yeah, you know, religion is, dem- religious demography is glacial. That's how I describe it in the book. You don't typically see big shifts like in a year or two years or even five years. So you're looking at 10-year trends, sometimes 20-year trends. If you look at things like evangelicalism, like people who identify with an evangelical tradition, so Southern Baptist Assemblies of God, Pentecostals, people like that, they were 17% of America in 1972. They jumped to 30% of America in 1993. And now they're down to about 23% of America. It's interesting when you I tell people that, A lot of people applaud the fact they're declining from 1993, but they forget the fact they're actually up from 1972. There are more evangelicals in America today than there were 40 years ago. Catholics are very, very steady over the last 40 years. Incredibly steady. Never really going above 25% and never going below 20%, just sort of seesawing up and down around 22, 23, 24%. Now, The real decline you're seeing in American religion is a group that I call mainline Protestants. And those are people who are like United Methodists or Episcopalians or United Church of Christ. These are the kind of churches where they have female pastors, where they are open and affirming to LGBT people, where they're focused on things like social justice. They don't pound the pulpit and tell you you're going to hell. They're a little bit more moderate on social issues. In 1975, 30% of Americans were mainline Protestants. It was the largest religious tradition in America. Today, that share has dropped from 30% to 10% and is very likely going to go to 5% over the next decade because mainline Protestants are dying off very quickly because they're older. So that's really the big shift in American Christianity is Black Protestants have held held steady. Evangelicals have held steady. Catholics have done just fine. Mainline Protestants have gone from 30% to 10% while the nuns, like we just talked about, have gone from 5% to 24%. So, you know, that's really what's happened is a lot of moderate Christians are no longer Christians anymore. They say they're nuns on surveys and
0: that's led to the decline of mainline and the huge rise of the nuns. Yeah, I think it's interesting, that idea of mainline Protestantism going down. Because I remember when I was a kid in the 90s, you go to school and some kid would be like, oh, I'm Methodist, I'm Lutheran, I'm Baptist, I'm Episcopalian. I don't hear that anymore. It's like, well, I just go to this mega church and that's it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, I don't think we fully understand what that means for the future of America. Those institutions used to dominate America. I mean, in all facets of American life, the Methodists were very strong, the Episcopalians are very strong. And now all you've got is a lot of non-denominational Protestant Christians. Back in 1972, only 5% of all Christians were non-denominational, and now it's 25% and rising rapidly. It's the only tradition in American Christianity that's grown over the last 10 years. Baptists are down, Methodists are down, Episcopalians are down, Presbyterians are down. The only group that's grown are non-denominational churches, and they are eating denominational Christianity, and they represent this entirely different way to do faith because they have no accountability. They have no organizational structure. A lot of them started with a guy in his basement, a couple of families, and grew to a megachurch with 1,000 or 2,000 people who don't have a ton of accountability, a ton of history, a ton of connection. It's a radical rethinking of American Christianity. And
0: again, we don't really fully understand what that means for American society at the same time. Why do you think people have you know left mainline Protestantism and maybe joined like a, a large mega church or non denominational mega church? What do you think is going on there? Any insights? Man, that's
1: that's that's like the That's the question that keeps me up at night because I'm a mainline Protestant. I'm a pastor in the American Baptist Church, and we were an offshoot of the Southern Baptist Church, and we split over the issue of slavery in 1860s, right before the Civil War. So you know, my tradition is declining very rapidly. The church that I'm a part of had 300 members in the 1960s. Had 50 when I took over in 2006, and now we had 10 last Sunday. So, you know, we are part of this mainline decline. I think it was a lot of things. I think a big part of it was evangelicals got really popular in the 1990s. And a lot of, you know, my parents' generation, let's say, became evangelicals because it was the thing to do. And it leads to this perpetual cycle of the fewer people go, the fewer people go, right? So it goes down and spirals downward and downward. And now, if you look at the mainline, they are in serious trouble. For instance, the Episcopal Church, which used to be one of those powerful churches in America, only have about half a million people who come to church every Sunday. Half a million people in a nation of 330 million Americans. I mean, they're going to to go away in the next 20 years. So I think that what happened was those churches got older, they got grayer. And because of that, young families don't want to join a church with a bunch of 60 and 70-year-old people. When they have kids, they want their kids to play with other kids. There were no kids there. So I think it sort of fed on itself and perpetuated on itself. And once you get to a certain point, it's almost impossible to turn a church around because you just don't have a whole lot to offer when the church down the road has three youth pastors in a gymnasium in a beautiful sanctuary with lights and sounds and smells. And your kids want to go to that because all their friends go to that. So I think all those things together led to the death of the mainline. And I really do think American Christianity and American society, by the way, is worse when you only have one flavor of Protestant Christianity left in this country.
0: Yeah, I think we do underestimate the power of sociability when it comes to people's religious affiliations. I remember, if you can go further back, I know there weren't surveys done about religiosity in the 40s and 50s. But from what I understand, after World War II, that's when the mainline Protestant denominations saw this huge uptick, and it is sort of like it was like what you were supposed to do, like that's sort of like you had to join a church, and so people came became mainline Protestants. That's what everyone else was doing.
1: Absolutely, people people came back from the war and said, "Well, I need to." put down roots in my community and you know what the methodists are nice they're fine they don't yell at me they're they want to do soup kitchens and clothes closets and food pantries and help the community and i can deal with the theology piece of it because i believe in jesus but i don't know about jonah and the whale and noah and the flood and all those kind of things and those churches preach that corner of the sun a softer gospel and a lot of people found that you know very very appealing the other thing about the mainline is they're very hierarchical like the united methodist church they pick who your pastor is at your church you don't do that at the individual level so it's very very top down not bottom up but think of the kind of christianity that's surviving right now non-denominationals are a radical democratization of religious hierarchy it's all bottom up there's no top down anymore the top down churches are dying and the bottom up churches are succeeding wildly now because they don't have that structure there are no gatekeepers anymore so anybody can get a pulpit get a microphone get a field somewhere and start preaching and all of a sudden they have a church in two or three years you can't do as a united methodist you have to go to college to be a preacher you know you have to have a degree and a certification all those things it seems like that whole entire structure has sort of fallen by the wayside and now it's well anyone can get a microphone anyone can lead a church and it just changes what how we think about christianity and religion in general
0: so, we talked about Christianity, Christian denominations. What's the state of like Judaism and Islam? What's their growth yeah. line?
1: Yeah, those are those denominations, those traditions are really, really hard to find on surveys. About 1% of Americans are Muslims, which is, you know, 3.5 million people. We have 3.5 million Muslims in this country, but you have to do a really large survey to have enough Muslims to really see. You know, them in a way that you can do statistical analysis on, right? So Mormons are 1%, Muslims are 1%, Buddhists are 1%. Hindus are about one half of 1%. Jews are, depending on the survey, it's really hard to survey Jews because a lot of them kind of, they can't figure out whether they're religiously Jewish or culturally or, you know, genetically Jewish. So you kind of get all that together at the same time. But if you add all those traditions up together, you get about 6 or 7% of Americans kind of fall in those other religious traditions. We know that Muslims are the youngest religious tradition in America. The average Muslim adult in America is 33 years old, when the average American adult is about 50 years old overall. So Muslims are young. They're having lots of children. And so they're growing pretty significantly in the United States. But what's interesting about Muslims especially is they're very geographically concentrated in certain pockets around the country. For instance, in Dearborn, Michigan, there's a huge muslim population but there are, there are many counties in the united states where there's not a single muslim that appears in any census data so you know these communities are growing but they're growing sort of in these little pockets especially on the coasts not throughout the heartland they're getting larger but that's also you know they're they're getting a larger becoming a larger part of american society because of immigration as well you know most people immigrate to this country are not Protestants. There's a huge uh, growing number of Hispanic Catholics, obviously. But there's also people coming from the West and the East, and they bring their different religions here. So America is becoming less Christian over time. It's just happening very, very slowly over your lifetime, not over the next five years, let's say.
0: All right. So let's go back to the nuns specifically, because that's the topic of your book. When you first ran your analysis showing the significant increase in nuns, I mean, were you surprised by that? Or did you already have a hunch as a political scientist and a minister that the number of people who don't consider themselves religious had been increasing in the past several decades?
1: Yeah, it's, it's always showed up in the survey data, but you never know where a tweet's going to go, right? So, you know, I start the book with a story about that, that tweet that really kind of made, made me into what I am today. I just showed this graph here. The GSS had just come out with 2018 data and the nuns for the first time were now larger than evangelicals or catholics and i you know just tweeted this graph out and it said big news the nuns are you know 23% now which is, is at least the same size as evangelicals and catholics and it seems like everyone wanted to hear that at the time i mean it just took off i mean i looked down at my phone all of a i said, had 75 retweets in the first 10 minutes and within the next week or two i've been called by basically every news media outlet in america and the world who were interested in american religion what was changing in american religion and part of me was thinking this has been going on for 30 years now. You know, why, why are you all keying on this right now? But I think we've sort of hit this inflection point where it used to be to have no religion in America was not the thing you would say. You know, we were a generically Christian country. We have something called American civic religion, right? Which is the idea that and God we trust is on the money, and that's totally cool. And we open Congress with a with a prayer from a pastor, and that's totally fine. But you know, as the number of nuns get larger and larger, it becomes more and more socially acceptable to say you have no religious affiliation. And I think that's fed on itself. And so I think it was we got to this point where we all looked at each other and went, Oh wow, like this is a real thing. They're not 10% of Americans, they're 25% of Americans now and growing rapidly. And that's changing America in ways that we can never fully understand. And a lot of these reporters wanted to talk with me about the implications of what that means, not just now, but for the future of America when we're 30% nuns or 40% nuns or 50% nuns and how that changes every you know situation in American life is going to change because America's religious composition will look in 30 years like nothing we've ever seen before. We're gonna take a quick break for
0: your word from our sponsors. Whether it's stress, a demanding morning schedule, or trouble sleeping, we all know that sometimes life keeps you up. And trying to conquer the day after a night of tossing and turning is not so easy. Now, you can get the sleep you deserve with zequil, Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies. Zequil, Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies are designed to help you fall asleep naturally with no next day grogginess. Made with an optimal level of melatonin combined with a proprietary blend of other botanicals like chamomile and lavender, Zequil, Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies help to regulate your sleep cycle instead of just knocking you out. They're non habit forming and work with your body to help you get the sleep you need. And to top it all off, they come in a great tasting wild berry vanilla flavor. So I've been using Z-Quil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies for the past month now. Really have enjoyed it. I've used melatonin in the past to help me fall asleep when I've had trouble falling asleep. I like the Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies because, well, it comes in a gummy format, and who does not like gummies? The botanical blend helps you feel nice and relaxed, drift off to sleep, and the next day, don't feel groggy. Check out Z-Quil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies and the full line of Pure Z Sleep aids to start sleeping soundly today. And now back to the show. Okay, so the number of nuns has is increased about the same as Catholics or Evangelical Christians. So the question I'm sure people ask you is like, why? What's going on? What what is causing people to disaffiliate with a religion? So when they're asked, "Are you what religion do you belong to?" they're going to say, "None." Like, what what do you, what are what's the cause? Have you figured it out?
1: I wish I could give it like a bumper sticker reason, and uh, you know, in the book, I try to I lay out a whole chapter where I give sort of eight different reasons, potential reasons, and I could probably add eight more reasons on top of that that. I thought about in the last couple of years about why there's so many nuns. But I'll, I think the first one, I think this is really the overriding one that a lot of people have not really thought about because they haven't read, you know, 1800s social science, which is this idea called secularization. Max Faber, who's this really famous German sociologist, basically argued that as society becomes more educationally advanced and has higher levels of income, they're going to naturally become less religious. And he actually had a term for this. He called it demagication. He said that. The world, you know, three or 400 years ago was all magic. Didn't make any sense at all. Like, why did it rain? Why was there an earthquake? Why was there a flood? Why did my crops not grow? Everything seemed magical. We didn't really understand cause and effect or geography or geology or climatology or anything else. So everything just sort of seemed like it was spiritual. And then science comes in and sort of says, well, here's why it's raining or not raining. And here's why your crops die or don't die. Or here's why you died of that disease. It's called viruses and bacteria, not because of God's trying to smite you or something like that. So what Weber said was, the more we learn about the world, the less we need God. So he, you know, this this is called secularization theory. And you know, he was really he was proved right by what happened in Western Europe. If you look at Western European countries, places like Italy, France, Germany, Spain, Portugal. Those countries are almost entirely irreligious now. We're talking about 10, 15% of those folks go to church at least once a week. I mean, very, very few religious people in those countries anymore. And it was sort of inevitable in my mind that what happened in Europe was going to come across the ocean and wash across American shores. We just didn't know how long it was going to take. And in our case, it took probably about 40 years for the waves really starting to crest across America in the early 1990s. And so we were bound to be secularized. It just took longer and went slower than a lot of people anticipated. And I don't think we're done yet. Secularizing, I don't think we're ever going to get to the level of Europe where you know, 80, 90% of those people are not religious, but we're definitely going to look a lot more
0: like Europe in the next 30 years than we did in the last 30 years. And what role do you think politics has played in the decline in religion?
1: It's It's hard to mistake the fact that 40% of people who identify as very liberal also identify as religiously unaffiliated. It's only 10% of people who are, who are very conservative. So 40% of very liberals are nuns. Only 10% of very conservatives are nuns. I think what's happened is that we have forced people to sort themselves into all kinds of camps. And we say you can't, you have to have a congruent identity. So for instance, it's really hard today to be an evangelical and a Democrat when 80% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. Um, it's very, very hard on the other hand to be a conservative, politically conservative atheist because 85% of atheists voted for Joe Biden in 2020. So what's happened is people have felt like they need to align all facets of their personality, their religiosity, their political views, their cultural views, even where they live. They want everything to line up in such a way that it's all, you know, congruent with each other. And so, and there's actually been some political science work on this is we're seeing more and more people are picking their religion based on their politics much more than they're picking their politics based on religion, which is really mind blowing because for like the last 50 years in social science, we always assumed that religion was the first cause. It was the first lens that we looked at the world through and politics was sort of downstream of that. But there's been a lot of evidence in the last five years that says it's the opposite, that everything, that politics is the way we look at everything in the world, including what kind of church we go to. Evangelicals have benefited from this. They brought in a lot of conservatives, but mainline Protestants have been hurt by this because they're not so politically cohesive. There's a lot of Republicans and Democrats in those churches, so people are sorting themselves out. And the main line were sort of the casualty of all that.
0: That is interesting that there's these findings that people are choosing the religion based on their politics. That seems like the tail wagging the dog. I mean, you think, uh, you know, it's the spiritual would help you decide your earthly, but it seems like the earthly is helping people decide their spiritual.
1: And you know what? I had a pastor tell me one time, he goes, listen, I get them for 30 minutes every Sunday, if I'm lucky, you know, if they pay attention to me, they go home and watch Fox News or CNN for six hours a day, seven days a week. I can't compete with that. You know, so where are they getting the gospel more from? Where are they getting, you know, religious ideas more from? Probably the TV than me. And so, you know what a lot of pastors have done, interestingly enough, because of this polarization is they stop talking about politics in the pulpit entirely because they don't want to turn off anybody in the congregation. So when you leave that void in people's lives, they're going to fill it in some other way. Like, how should I think about abortion or immigration or gay marriage or, you know, what DACA or whatever it is they're going to listen to somebody. And pastors sort of gave that away over the last 30 years. And now the people who talk to them are people like Anderson Cooper and Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and people like that. So they're getting it from somewhere else. It's not from the pulpit. It's from the TV each and every night.
0: All right. So secularization, secularization, Uh, is one theory of the decrease in religious affiliation. Politics in America has, has played a role. You also talk about this idea of social desirability bias. What is social desirability bias and what influence do you think it has had on religion surveys?
1: Yeah, so social desirability bias is really a fancy way of saying that people lie. On surveys. We know this. We've known this forever that people are really, really prone to lying about certain things in their life. Questions about things like sexuality. Do you masturbate? Have you ever cheated on your partner? How many sexual partners have you had? Do you do drugs? What kind of drugs do you do? Have you ever stolen, lied, cheated, sealed? All those kind of questions are you racist? Are you sexist? Those kind of questions, you never get the right answers. You all, always get the, the answer that people want you to hear, not the real answer. And we know that when it comes to religion that social desirability bias is a huge problem because people want to seem more religious than they actually are. I talk about in the book about this, this county in Ohio Ash, Ashtabula County, Ohio, It's this little rural county in, in the middle of the state. And this survey team sent a survey out to about a thousand people living in that county, asked them how often they went to church about 37% of respondents said they went to church every Sunday. So they checked. They went around to every church in the county every weekend and they counted cars in the parking lot or they asked the pastor, they called them up and said, how many people do you have in church last Sunday? They tabulated all that and they figured out the share of people in that county who went to church every Sunday was about 20%, not 37%. So half the people who say they go to church every Sunday lie about it on surveys. And so what that means for us though is as it's become less and less taboo to be a nun in the 21st century, we actually might be seeing the real answer to the religion question, not the socially desirable answer. And so there's a real possibility, and we'll never be able to figure this out with any certainty, but there's a real possibility that we've never really been that religious. It's just people lied on surveys a lot in the 1970s and 80s to overinflate their own religiosity when really they never went to church. But today, they're giving us the real answer or a, a, an answer that's closer to real and honest. So we're actually seeing the real numbers today, not the overinflated numbers we saw 30 or 40 years ago.
0: Yeah, I think that's an interesting point that maybe Americans have been less religious for a long time. And now we're just knowing because people are just being honest with the surveys. And I, I think I've read you know, history books about the history of you know, Christianity in America, where they talk about where they, they actually look at like church roles. And you look at the number of people on a church roll compared to the number of the population, and it, like the number of people on a church roll is like a it's like a, it's like twenty to thirty percent of the actual population of a, a colony or an early state. So I mean, it, it's probably been smaller than we. The actual religiosity has been, you know, probably in the same range for a really long time.
1: I, I would. I think. I think generally we were never as religious as certain people think we were, but I think we're less religious today than we were. 30 or 40 years ago. But I don't think that number is as big as we think it is. But again, it's it, we'll never be able to figure out this question with any certainty, which is really, you know, obviously troublesome for me, but it's also problematic for social science because we can't say, are we more religious today than we were 50 years ago with any sort of empirical data? It's it's maddening. Yeah.
0: Uh, so let's talk about the demographics of nuns. Like, what do they look like? Are they more or less educated than average, more or less income, male, female breakdown? Can of just give us a thumbnail sketch of a, of a nun?
1: Oh, man, they're all over. They're everywhere and they're everyone. I think that if anything comes out of the book, I hope people realize that it's not the, the trope that we have in our heads. It's always like a, a white male philosophy professor who makes a bunch of money and has a PhD. Um, that, is, that is not the nuns anymore. Now, the other thing in the book that I think is really, really important is I break the nuns down into three distinct categories, right? Atheists, agnostics, nothing in particular. Atheists are 6% of the population. They have very high levels of education. Almost half of them have a four-year college degree, which is insane because only about 30% of Americans have a four-year college degree. So very, very highly educated. They have incomes that are much higher than the national average. About 47% of atheists are white men, which is obviously a disproportionate amount. 60% of all atheists are males. And I talk about in the book, if you go on Amazon and look at the bestseller list for the atheist category, almost all of it is white men. So it's a very white male-dominated space. Politically, they're incredibly liberal. Um, They think they're to the left of the Democratic Party now, and they see themselves trending even further to the left of the Democratic Party. They're incredibly politically active. They show up to meetings. They go to rallies. They hold protests. I mean, they put bumper stickers on their cars. They put up yard signs. They do all that stuff. They're actually the most politically active group in America today are atheists. Agnostics are a little, I call them like atheist light. They're also 6% of America. They do have higher levels of education, but not as high as atheists. They have higher incomes, but not as high as atheists. They're politically active, not as much as atheists. And they're liberal, but not as liberal as atheists. But they're sort of on in that direction of atheism. But the third group is this group called Nothing in Particular. And I think this is the group that sort of goes understudied, underconsidered, and underthought about. About 22% of Americans today identify as nothing in particular, which is about the same size as evangelicals. These people have, they have the lowest education of any religious group in America. They only 20% of them have a four-year college degree. 60% of them make $50,000 a year or less as a household household which means that most of them live in poverty. They are left out, left behind, lost. They don't vote. They don't go to meetings. They don't participate in the political process at all. I think they're really the tragic figures of the of the 21st century in America because they are not economically prosperous. They're not culturally advancing. They feel like they're isolated and unmoored from the rest of society. And the funny thing is, most of the nuns are nothing in particular. Three and five nuns are nothing in particular. And yet, it seems like all the attention in the media on the nuns Falls on the atheists and agnostics when really the nothing in particulars are so different than they are and larger than they are at the same time. So I think we need to spend a lot more time thinking about that third group, the
0: nothing in particular group. Yeah, this I thought that was an interesting point in the book. So going back to the theories of what's causing disaffiliation, we talked about the secularization theory. As you become more educated, the less likely you're going to be religious, and that would make sense for someone who's atheist or agnostic. But as you noted, nothing in particulars they're not as it they're not very educated. So is what's going on there? Is, is secularization playing a role? Like, What's causing them to disaffiliate?
1: I, my best inclination with them is they are, they are dissociating themselves with every part of American society. You know, I think if you look at the data, a lot of them tried to go to college, but just didn't make it for whatever reason. I bet it's probably because of things like finances or logistics or things like that. These are people who are just, I think these are the kind of, in my mind, here's who I think they are. These are the kind of people who wanted to live the same lives their parents did and they try to do the same things their parents did, which would go to high school, get a degree, and then go work at the local factory, except the local factory their parents worked at doesn't exist anymore. It closed down and got offshore to you know somewhere in Southeast Asia. So the life they wanted to live, they can't live anymore. And the money they wanted to make, they can't make anymore. And they just don't feel like there's any way for them to move forward. They feel like every part of society has left them behind, whether it be education, whether it be politics, and whether it be the church they are antisocial. They have no reason to be social because nobody can do anything for them. They are really sort of in despair in American society and they're rapidly growing. And I think their numbers are are going to continue to grow because I think for a lot of people, they don't want to reject religion and take on all the negative stereotypes that atheists have in American society, but they also can't be religious either because they're antisocial largely. So they're sort of caught between you know, the, the real hardcore nuns on one side and the real hardcore evangelicals on the other side and go, I can't do either of those things. So I'll just be stuck here in the mushy middle.
0: So these are the people that, you know, like I guess Robert Putnam was talking about in Bowling Alone. These are the people who are bowling alone.
1: Absolutely. They're both. But I think, you know, Putnam, if Putnam wrote his book today, he should call it Tweeting Alone or Facebooking Alone or Instagramming Alone, right? The internet has accelerated our ability to stay at home and still be entertained in ways that we don't even fully grasp. So, you know, people are doing fewer social things even back in Putnam's day. He blamed it on cable TV. I mean, think about what Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and all these things have done for us and TikTok and Instagram. Now we never have to leave our house. And I think for certain people, that's really sort of cut them off from any potential economic prosperity, you know, relational prosperity. And, you know, people used to go out and see other people and hang out and enjoy company and things like that. Now they just stay home and watch Netflix on a Friday night. And I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that has been a net negative for American
0: society. And also, another point you make about the nothing in particulars is unlike atheists who say, yeah, there's no divine being out there, agnostics, like, well, I don't care. Maybe, maybe not. nothing in particulars, they, when you ask them, they might not associate with a religion, but if you ask them, are you, do you believe in a higher power? They they might say yes. And some of these folks even attend church every now and then.
1: That's right. About 30% of nothing in particular say they go to church at least once a year. So they're not anti-anti-religion like your atheists or agnostics are. You know, less than 3% of atheists or agnostics go to church at all. So, you know, there's a huge divide in 40% of nothing particular say religion
0: is at least somewhat important in their lives. We've talked about education and income of nuns. What about age? Is there a general age or an average age of of a nun? Yeah. So nuns are, the conception that they're
1: a bunch of young folks is actually not that empirically true. They are younger than the average American, but only by a few years and nothing in particular is actually, their, their median age is very, very similar to the median age of the average American. Now we have 18 year old nuns. We got 85 year old nuns. So it really spans the gambit. It does lean towards the younger generation just because generational replacement and change and things like that. But what we're seeing is if you look at the data on generation Z, which are people who are born in 1995 or later, the oldest members are now moving into adulthood so we can survey them. We're seeing that the the rate of nuns amongst Generation Z now is way over 40%. I've seen 42 or 44% nuns amongst Generation Z. So think about this. Every day in America, baby boomers are dying off. 18% of them are nuns. But every day in America, someone out from Gen Z is moving into adulthood and 44% of them are nuns. So we're seeing this rapid shift In that old people are dying off who are more religious while young people are entering American life who are much less religious. And that by itself is going to change the composition of American religion without anyone converting or deconverting at all. Just generational replacement is going to do more work than any sort of
0: conversion or deconversion ever could. Well, let's talk about predictions for the future. So have political scientists made predictions about the number of nuns, what it'll be like 10, 20, 40 years from now?
1: So I get asked that question a lot, and you know, prediction is obviously a very, very treacherous place to go into because American society can shift. And if you're if you're a Christian, you believe in revival and awakening and, and those kind of things. And when America's seen two of those. We saw two great awakenings in our history, where massive amounts of people, millions and millions of people, became Christians overnight, basically because of you know this cadre of preachers who are very dynamic. I have to say, assuming that won't happen, and you know, there's no way to assume it will or won't happen. I think what we're going to see in America in 50 years is probably 45 or 50% of Americans are going to be non-religious. So half secular, half not. Christianity will probably be 35 or 40% of America, and there'll probably be 10 or 15% of America who are everybody else, Jews, Muslims, Mormons, Hindus, Buddhists, all making up that other 10 or 15%. I don't think we're ever going to get to the place where Europe is today, where it's you know 80% secular, 90% secular. I think we're stubbornly religious in this country, and we always will sort of have this very strong core of religious belief, and probably 40% of Americans will be Christians or whether it be very conservative Catholics or Christians or, or um, Jews or Muslims, or whatever it is, they will still exist even in 50 or 60 years.
0: Well, going back to this idea of that you know, Gen Z... 40% of them are saying they're nuns. You know, they don't identify with religion. Going back to this idea also, you said earlier, that religion, religious demography changes very slowly. And one reason it changed slowly, I think social scientists have noticed that, okay, young people will you know, become less religious in their early years after leaving home, but then they become more religious again when they settle down and have their own families. The projections you just gave, it sounds like that's not going to happen.
1: Yeah, there used to be this model called the life cycle model. And it said that when you were a kid, you know, under the age of 18, you were fairly religious because your, kid, your parents took you to church. And you did youth group and church camp and all that kind of good stuff. But when you went into, you know, your 20s, you went to college, you partied a little bit, you know, sowed your wild oats, and you became less religious. But then when you moved into your late 20s, early 30s, you would find a partner, you would get married, you would have kids, and then you would want to raise them in the same sort of religious upbringing that you grew up with. So you'd go back to church and take your kids back to church. Well. That held for the baby boomers. They actually did do that. They came back to church when they were in their you know late 20s, early 30s through their 40s. That is not happening at all amongst younger generations. You know, in the book, I show these these graphs where it's just up and up and up. There is no dip when people are supposed to have kids and come back to church. They don't come back to church ever. And so we're and we're actually seeing this, interestingly enough, in every birth cohort. So people born in the 50s are doing the same thing. 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s are all doing the same thing. As they age, they're becoming less religious over time. So there's really, you know, pastors have sort of held out hope. Oh, and the kids, you know, come back from college and they get married, they're going to come back. I see zero evidence of that in the data.
0: They're just getting less and less religious as every year passes. So as a minister, you've seen the interest in religion firsthand in your small congregation. As you said, it started out at 300. 50 when you took it on, now you had 10 people at church last Sunday. Uh, besides shrinking church congregations, what are the larger social and political implications of the increasing number of nuns for a society in which only you know, 60% of people, some of the projections you gave, say they're religious?
1: Yeah, so I think we have to think about the social safety net in this country. and you know we, I think we forget about all the invisible things that churches do to make life less awful. Even little things like, you know, the Southern Baptists have this disaster relief corps. It's a bunch of guys with chainsaws that come out of places that have tornadoes and hurricanes and cut down trees for you and and haul them off. Little things like that. Things, you know, like my church, for instance, I packed 210 brown bags this morning to deliver to kids over the weekend in our school district because our poverty rate's 85%. So they have food to eat over the weekends because a lot of those kids just frankly starve. In our community, so little churches do little things like this all the time to make life life less awful. So where are we going to fill those gaps in from? I am I. I would love if the atheists would come together and create social service organizations that would help on a large scale. I think that would be the most amazing thing ever. But I have I don't see a whole lot of evidence of that working right now. So I don't know who's going to fill in the social service gap. But also, just from a political science perspective, church used to be this place where you would sit with people who have a different political view than you do but you still love them and trust them and care for them as part of your family because they're part of your church family. So, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, even in evangelical churches, the number of Republicans, the number of Democrats was almost exactly equal, even in the 1980s. So you would sit next to people who had completely different views than you did and voted for completely different candidates, but you still saw them as human beings. You didn't demonize them like we're seeing today. And now when you never come in contact with someone who votes differently than you do or thinks differently than you do about political issues, you automatically think the worst of the other side. You, you sort of other them. You create this sort of you know mirror image in your head of everything that's good about you is bad about them and vice versa. So what that does is creates these larger divides in American society between Republicans and Democrats. Churches used to be what, call, what we call bridge building institutions. They built bridges from your world to their world. The people from the other side of the political aisle There are not many bridge-building institutions in America anymore, and I think we're all going to be worse for it, and polarization is only going to get worse for it, and we really are going to feel more and more like we're living in two separate planets when Democrats talk about something versus Republicans because we don't even talk to each other anymore.
0: Besides the, the sort of the dwindling social service component that churches offer, and maybe the sort of the buffer of polarization that churches once offered, I mean another role that the churches played in at least in American life it was a is a socially organizing role. You'd go there and you'd, you'd make friends, you'd find mates. You could improve yourself. There was, you know, this history throughout American Christianity and even Judaism where you'd have these mutual improvement associations within churches that was for free, was all volunteer and is sort of that Alexis de Tocqueville idea of we're doing it on our own. We're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We don't need the state or a large corporation to do this for us. If that's gone, how are people organizing themselves in the same way that churches once organized people?
1: They aren't. I think that's the long and the short of it. I mean, I think there's some online organization that goes on, but I think that the evidence is overwhelmingly in one direction, which is that online interactions are not as good as in-person interactions, whether it comes to friendship or community building or social trust or social capital. We're not seeing those being replaced by anything else. And by the way, churches used to be really good about training people about how to run meetings and how to fundraise and how to organize an event, let's say. They used to learn those skills in church, then use them in the community to, you know, fundraise for a candidate or fundraise for something good in the community to help someone who got cancer, let's say. So these civic skill building exercises that churches used to teach are sort of falling by the wayside now and nothing is stepping in to take over. I'll give you a good example. So there's this atheist movement for a while called Sunday Assembly, where it would be a bunch of atheists coming together on Sunday and basically having their form of church where they would sing like pop songs and they would hear like some sort of like inspirational message from a speaker. But most Sunday assemblies failed and the reason they fail was because they felt bad asking for money. Because a lot of atheists are very skeptical of anyone asking them for money, even if it seems quasi or pseudo religious. So most of them closed down because they couldn't pay the bills. So you know these other organizations are trying to do what church did, but for whatever reason can't replicate the social aspect, the political aspect, the cultural aspect that churches do. And I just don't see anything in American society that comes close to replicating what happens in in, in church every Sunday across America.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think something I've heard you bring up in another podcast is like this hypothetical, like what will society look like when it's nuns for three generations back? So like grandparents were nuns, their kids were nuns, and their kids, those kids were nuns. Like the kids of those kids were nuns.
1: It's going to, I think there's actually going to be a swing back the other direction. And the the reason I say that is because we know that young people always want to rebel against whatever their parents are up to. And for you know, generations their parents have been up to Christianity largely in America so they want to rebel against that and become a nun but isn't the most rebellious thing to be religious when your parents aren't in, in some weird way I do think we're going to see sort of a resurgence I don't I don't think it's going to like bring Christianity back to where it was 30 years ago or whatever I think that's that's overshooting the mark but I do think there's going to be the sort of counterculture thing that happens when you're second or third generation nun and you're going to look around and go you know what, I kind of like the idea of being religious. I kind of like the feeling of being spiritual. I want to think the world is bigger than me and I want to be part of something bigger than myself. And I want to think there's something beyond all these things. I do think that some people, for whatever reason, are wired towards spiritual things and they're going to drift their way back into church. Even though their parents never really got them in church in the first place, they're going to seek it out on their own because they're going to want that spiritual void being filled somehow. So I do think there's going to be sort of a, a backlash against the nuns. I don't know how large it's going to be. I know, I don't know when it's going to happen, but I do think it's a very real possibility in the next 20 or 30 years we're going to see first generation Christians again.
0: Well, this is that that goes kind of related to that Strauss Howe generational theory, right? There's like a, in America, there's sort of this cycle of generations that happen. There's a lot of swinging from back and forth, like one generation's rebelling against the other generation or the previous generation. So you're saying that could happen? maybe yeah and we do see that religion waxes and wanes in different places in America. you know over the last
1: 2 or 300 years we see that we don't see that in the last 50 years as much we see only one direction but there's plenty of reasons to believe that Americans are not just going to become not spiritual at all in 50 years and for a lot of them we are already seeing this by the way we're already seeing people fill up their spiritual void by things like tarot cards and astrology and palm reading and crystals and healing and all those kind of things. So people are always going to be spiritual. How they express that really depends on what these institutions do in response to the changing religious landscape in America today.
0: Yeah, I think that's going to be the, I think people will always be religious. It's, yeah, I think it's on an institutional level. Will it be like it was in the 1950s or 60s? And that's- Yeah, that's the key say.
1: though, is use the right word, institution. I think people will become anti-institutional in America. And I do wonder if that's going to come to an end, though. And we're going to start believing in institutions more and more because we realize without them, we get the current political and religious landscape of America, where it's a bunch of people who got famous online for saying odd things and how bad that is for American democracy. Institutions, I've changed my mind on a lot of this stuff. I think institutions are actually good. I think gatekeepers are actually good. Uh, we got to keep the crazy down in this country because the internet's basically given the, the crazy people a megaphone. And we've seen what that's done to us in the last 10 years.
0: Yeah, that's one one of the things, the predictions that the Strauss-Howe generational theory makes is that we're due to like a, a resurgence in institution building, supposedly. We'll see if it, if it shakes out. As I say about, you know about profits, you've said like most profits get killed. So... <laughs>
1: I, I do not see myself as a prophet, but I will say, I think that institutions are going to make a comeback because to go back to the Episcopal church, they have no people. They have one point They're They take in $1.5 billion a year in their endowments, like around $10 billion. They got money. They just need the people to show up And a resurgent group of young people wanted to become Episcopalian. I'm sure they would roll out the red carpet for them. So there's a possibility there. It's just, how do we get there? I have no idea.
0: Well, Ryan, this has been an interesting conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work?
1: You can go to, I'm, I'm big on Twitter. I post graphs every day at Ryan Burge, R-Y-A-N-B-U-R-G-E. RyanBurge.net is my website. My first book, The Nuns, Where They Came From, Who They Are, Where They're Going is on Amazon.com right now. And I have a new book coming out next March, March of 2022. It is called 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America. And you can pre-order on Amazon right now. All right. Well, Ryan Burge,
0: thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. My guest name is Ryan Birds. He's the author of the book, The Nuns, where they came from, who they are, and where they are going. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You check out our show notes at awmis nuns, where you can find links to resources. We delve deeper into this topic. <laughs> Well, that wraps up another edition of the A1 Podcast. Make sure to check our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad free episodes of the A1 Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to StitcherPremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS to check out for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad free episodes of the A1 Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member you think Think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you to listen to the Wombat Podcast. Put what you've heard into action.